And I think what we learn from our history is that if a person doesn't have an advocate to really fight for them, all of the other rights that we promise are meaningless. And what the court said in Gideon is that it takes a lawyer to make sure every other right is fulfilled. So if I had to choose one fix that is most important, it would be right to counsel, because without that, we really don't have any other rights being realized. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And uh, before we begin today's show, let me just take one moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management solution for lawyers. You can find more about them at www.goclio.com. Bob On March 18, 1963, the Supreme Court decided Gideon v. Wainwright, a landmark case that gave us the right to counsel in criminal cases for both state and federal courts, even if we can't afford to pay for one. Since that time, the right to counsel has become a cornerstone to our justice system, but does it guarantee equal access to justice for all? Well, we're going to be talking about a a couple of different aspects of Gideon's promise and whether that's been fulfilled on today's show. And here to help us do that are two guests. Let me begin by welcoming uh, Mr. Jonathan Rapping. John is the president and founder of Gideon's Promise, a, a program that helps recruit and train and place public defenders in a number of public defender programs in the South. Uh, He's also the director of the Honors Program in Criminal Justice at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School, where he also teaches criminal law and criminal procedure. He's been uh, the director of public defender training programs in a number of uh, jurisdictions, and he has been the recipient of the Lincoln Leadership Award from Kentucky's Department of Public Advocacy the Sentencing Project Award from the National Association of Sentencing Advocates and Mitigation Specialists, and the Gideon's Promise Award from the Southern Center for Human Rights. We're very pleased to have you on the show, Jonathan Rapping. Thank you. Good to be here. In addition, we have joining us Ms. Don Porter. She's the founder of Trilogy Films and the director-producer of Gideon's Army, a documentary about public defenders associated with Gideon's Promise that premiered at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival and aired on HBO Documentary Films. Prior to beginning her television career, Ms. Porter graduated from Georgetown University Law Center and worked as an attorney at Baker and Hotstetler, as well as the ABC Television Network. Among her many projects, she directed Spies of Mississippi, produced Serious Moonlights, starring Meg Ryan and Timothy Hutton, and also produced The Green, an independent feature starring Cheyenne Jackson from 30 Rock and Emmy-winning award actress Julia Ormond. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ms. Porter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Jonathan, let's start with you. For the benefit of our listeners, give us a little bit about the history and the inspiration for Gideon's Promise. 
Sure. Well, I started my public defender career in Washington, D.C., at the D.C. Public Defender Service, which is really a model public defender office. It's one of the few public defender offices in the country where caseloads are reasonable, where we have the resources needed to do the work that needs to be done, and where clients really get the kind of representation they deserve across the board. And so that was kind of my introduction to public defense, and I spent 10 years there. And then I moved to Georgia to begin working on the effort to reform indigent defense in the state where I now live. I went to New Orleans and was involved in the effort to reform public defense in that city after Hurricane Katrina hit, did some work in Alabama and Mississippi. And, and really, as I worked in the South, it was my introduction to something I hadn't seen in Washington, D.C. I saw systems where, quite honestly, the expectation of the kind of justice that poor people deserved was embarrassingly low. And I started meeting public defenders, young public defenders who came into the work really passionate, really wanting to make a difference. And they would very quickly go into these systems that expected them to process people, that expected them to handle crushing caseloads without the resources needed. And you would see that these lawyers would just have the passion beaten out of them. And so Gideon's Promise, my wife and I started Gideon's Promise as an effort to build a supportive community of public defenders across the South that could train and inspire and support lawyers in the most challenging jurisdictions to resist pressures to just process human beings, to actually push the system, these systems to live up to our noblest constitutional ideals. And, and that really was the, the genesis of Gideon's Promise seven years ago. You've raised a couple of points there that I want to come back to, but I do want to first bring Don Porter into the conversation. And Don, well, first of all, congratulations to you because you've just won the 2014 Rittenauer Documentary Film Prize for your film, Gideon's Army. And your film documents three public defenders who've come out of the Gideon's Promise program. Tell us what drew you to this program and this issue and to make a film about this. Well, it's really what Don Rapping's describing. I have to back up and say I was introduced to him through Kirsten Levingston, who used to work for the Brennan Center and now is at the Ford Foundation. And when I first met Rapp, he started talking just like he's speaking right now. And the things he was saying really kind of grabbed my interest and attention. But what really did it was he's a, a very warm and generous person, and he invited me to come down and see what they do and attend. They have a two-week training session that kicks off each new class of public defenders that they bring in. And so I went to the center, and I just was so moved by what I saw. There were all these great young people, and they were all fired up and talking about the Constitution, and I thought, I don't see any lawyers like this, and when we think of public defender, this is not what we think of. So there's two pieces that drew me to the story. One is the appalling conditions of people who are caught in the criminal justice system, but the second is the group of people who are working to change it, and I just thought they were all remarkable, which they are, and I think that that's why the film's resonated with people. And I'm really, really proud of the Ridenauer Prize. It's for truth-telling and justice. So it's really important that the work of Gideon's Promise and the public defenders is recognized. So I'm really, really thrilled about that. Jonathan, you hinted at some issues facing public defenders, and one of the obvious ones is workload. 
Can you tell us what the problems are with the workload, why it's so heavy, why public defenders are so understaffed and underfunded, and what other issues face public defenders? Well, I think the why maybe is obvious to anyone who's sort of thinking about this at any level. I think the why is that there really isn't a commitment in this country. Ensure justice is done for people who we don't see as part of our community. I think in many ways, people who are caught up in the criminal justice system, they've been demonized. They've been sort of treated and cast as as monsters, people not worthy of justice and certainly not worthy of us spending our tax dollars on them. And, and I think that as we really come to see people in the criminal justice system as the other, uh, there just isn't really, we, we don't prioritize funding representation for people for people accused of crimes and so you know the the answer to why caseloads are so high it's because over the last really 30 years we have criminalized more and more behavior sentencing is getting more and more draconian and as there's more and more pressure to prosecute people and charge people there's not the same commitment to make sure that they have an advocate that the fight is fair and so public defenders have found caseloads going up without money coming in to ensure that they can staff their offices to handle these rising caseloads so that's sort of the why I think in terms of what those pressures do to public defenders, that's maybe a more complicated issue. I think public defenders who start trying to handle crushing caseloads, and when we talk about caseloads, I think it's important to remember that caseloads are really people. What public defenders are doing is they are representing human beings, and they see a system swallowing these human beings up, and they are powerless to give these human beings are charged with representing the kind of representation they deserve. And that can break someone's spirit. That can cause people to either quit or to become desensitized. And so I think what we start to see are a lot of public defenders who are struggling to keep their passion and to deliver justice to their clients. But it's really hard. I think what Dawn's film does so well, I mean, it really is a great service to our popular culture because we've had a popular culture develop over the last few decades where public defenders and the people they represent really are demonized and the heroes are sort of law enforcement and prosecutors. What Dawn really does is she shows these people as not only heroic, uh, but these public defenders are human beings who are really struggling to do what is right and the audience can see that they are dealing with challenges that many people in the audience know they couldn't deal with. So it really sheds some light on the problems that public defenders face every day. Don, you followed three lawyers in your film, and I was struck by something Jonathan said earlier in his comments, uh, which was that he found a, a kind of a different situation in the South than he had experienced in his work in Washington prior to that. What did you see? Is, is there something unique about the circumstances that these defenders face in the South that somehow makes it different than being a public defender in, I don't know, Massachusetts or New York or California? Well, I think that the challenges for public defenders are pretty great across the country. I mean, you know, there's a crisis in Boise, Idaho, where you'll find understaffed offices under-resourced offices. I think what is unique about the South, and, you know, I too came from Washington, D.C. I went to Georgetown, and, and that's where I began my legal career. So in Washington, it's one of the finest public defender offices 
in the country. It's very prestigious to get a job at the D.C. Public Defender Office. And I think that that's part of the reason why it hadn't occurred to me that the practice could be so different in so many other places. But I think what happens in the South is you have this combination of draconian drug law sentencing and minimum mandatory sentences for things like gun crimes or for robbery is 10-year minimum mandatory, no parole in Georgia. A third-time drug offense in Louisiana is life, no parole. So you have these really, really steep sentences, and that, I think, is one of the things that causes you know a lot of difficulty for public defenders who are trying to slow the system down and trying to you know get some manner of better situation for their clients, something that approximates fair resolution. Jonathan, given this funding issue and these other issues the public defenders face, why hasn't someone filed a Gideon versus Wainwright type of a case for public defenders saying there needs to be equal funding for prosecutors and defendants? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm sorry that indigent defense advocates have been trying to deal with for a long time. I think at the heart of the problem is that 51 years ago, the Supreme Court clearly said in Gideon versus Wainwright, we cannot have equal justice unless poor people have the kind of lawyer that you or I would pay for, right? And while it never said it explicitly, if equal justice requires the kind of lawyer you or I would pay for, it requires a lawyer with the time and the resources and the training and the commitment. And I think that was obvious. And so the court never said it explicitly. And then 21 years later, the Supreme Court was asked to lay out explicitly what it means to have an effective advocate. And the court responded with much less enthusiasm about the right to counsel. In a case called Strickland versus Washington, the court said, what does it mean to have an effective lawyer? Not very much. And it created a standard where if you think your lawyer is ineffective, you have to show two things to get any kind of relief. One, you have to show that your lawyer was incompetent. You have to show that your lawyer was drunk, that your lawyer was asleep, that your lawyer didn't prepare. But even if you can do that, you've got to go further and show that if you had a competent lawyer, a lawyer who was sober or awake or prepared, you would have won your case. And because that standard is so hard to meet, states have really gotten the message that we don't need to provide much of a lawyer. And so what we've gotten after Strickland versus Washington is states that really are let off the hook. They can basically provide a lawyer that doesn't have resources, that doesn't have training, and the Supreme Court has said that's okay. And so I think that has led to this system where people have unequal justice. Jonathan and Don, stay with us. We need to take just a very short break, and we will be back to talk more about Gideon's promise or perhaps the failure of Gideon's promise. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. 
We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with me today is Mr. Jonathan Rapping from Gideon's Promise and Ms. Don Porter, who is the director and producer of Gideon's Army, as well as my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. Well, before the break, we were talking about the disparity and kind of quality of public defenders. Don, how many people that are facing criminal charges actually use public defenders as opposed to retaining private counsel? The number I always say is it's about 80% of people who are charged with a criminal offense that goes forward qualify for a public defender. I'm not sure that that accurately reflects how many people use public defenders, but yeah, I think it gives you a sense that the overwhelming majority of people who are charged with criminal offenses in this country qualify for free legal help. And what that really tells you is our criminal justice system is almost exclusively a system for poor people. Those are the people who are being brought through the system and suffering the consequences uh, that Don described, draconian sentences, um, mandatory minimums, that sort of thing. How much does training and preparation really matter in a system where the caseloads are so heavy and where so many cases get pled out? You know, to what extent are we talking about uh, sort of competent processing versus competent representation or the pursuit of actual justice in these cases? I know Rap's going to have a lot to say about that, but I want to start because as I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a public defender, and I wasn't a criminal defense lawyer, so I can tell you as something of a an educated civilian, it makes all the difference in the world. When you have somebody who is able to, and I've seen this happen, I've seen where June Hardwick, for example, is one of the lawyers in the movie, I saw her take a case that had been handled by another lawyer who was apparently not well-trained or overworked or didn't didn't care. And as a result of that other bad lawyering, her client was facing a lot of time. And through perseverance, but also understanding the law, understanding the process, she was able without, you know, it's much short of a court pleading to negotiate with the prosecutor to get her client a deal that allowed her to get out of jail, to get her job back, to get her life back. I saw that over and over, that it's not only legal training, it's understanding how to be prepared, you know, what tools you have to negotiate with the prosecutor. And then there's something that's probably less tangible for people who are not being represented, but really critical for clients, which is giving people a bit of dignity during this process, which can be so overwhelming and so soul-crushing. And I cannot overstate the importance of somebody taking the time to listen to somebody who's facing probably the most important decisions of their life. I just can't overstate the importance of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that certainly when you look at lawyers like the lawyers in Gideon's Army, who are handling, you know, 120, 130, 150, 180 cases at a time, there's no way with all of the training and support in the world that those lawyers are going to be able to give every client the kind of representation they deserve. And so I don't pretend that through our program, we can take lawyers who are handling three, four, five hundred cases a year and bring them to the point that they can give everyone what they deserve. 
But what we can do is we can help lawyers develop tools so they can give more and more clients the kind of representation they deserve. They can give more and more people the kind of voice that they're entitled to have in the criminal justice system. And I think perhaps even more importantly than what they can do for individual clients on a case-by-case basis, they can begin to remind the system of what kind of representation Gideon versus Wainwright demanded, because far too often these systems have lost sight of the fact that poor people are entitled to the kind of representation we would expect. And every time a lawyer stands up and through training and support that they've received, they can get up and say, what's happening here isn't right, and let me show you what good representation looks like. It raises the expectation just a little bit more. And when you can get not just three lawyers, but you can get 250 lawyers or 1,000 lawyers across several systems doing that in unison, you start to raise a standard of excellence expectation that can ultimately, I think, drive reform. And that's what Gideon's promise is really all about. Don, given the state of the public defense system in the U.S., what's your opinion about whether or not the mandate of Gideon versus Wainwright is being met? I don't think it's being met right now, and I don't think it's been met for some time, but I think that that's changing. I think we've seen an indication on the federal level from the Justice Department, from Eric Holder's office, that they're addressing some of the inequities in sentencing. And I think that that type of effort, that signaling, you know, that may not reduce the overall prison population right away, but I think the signals from the executive branch are important. I think that the policy level on each side of the political spectrum, you know, the right saying, we know we started the war on drugs, but it's not working, it's too expensive, we're spending too much money to incarcerate you know, low-level drug offenders. Two-thirds of the people in our prison, 2.3 million people in prison, two-thirds of them are there for drug offenses. You know, we are the nation that incarcerates the most people by far over China and, and Russia. So I think that there's beginning to get from both sides of the political aisle, from the executive branch, and then, of course, through groups like Gideon's Promise, where people are just there's a, a nice drumbeat, I think, for change. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to make some progress. Jonathan, what would you do to change the system? What one thing is the most important thing to accomplish in the next year within the criminal justice systems? And what do we have to do to fix this? Well, if you're asking for one thing, I will say this. The criminal justice system has so many problems that we need to address, right, from the sheer volume of behavior that we criminalize to really draconian sentences to inhumane prison conditions. There are lots of problems, but the one that I think is most important is fulfilling the right to counsel, being true to the right to counsel, because I think if you go back to before 1963 when Gideon v. Wainwright was decided. That was a time in our history when we didn't have the same kind of draconian sentences. We didn't have mandatory minimums, but we still had stories, cases like the Scottsboro Boys. We still had plenty of cases, far too many cases, where people were processed through a system and punished and sometimes executed without a lawyer. And I think what we learn from our history is that if a person doesn't have an advocate to really fight for them, 
all of the other rights that we promise are meaningless. And what the court said in Gideon is that it takes a lawyer to make sure every other right is fulfilled. So if I had to choose one fix that is most important, it would be right to counsel, because without that, we really don't have any other rights being realized. Don, you followed these three lawyers over a course of time in your documentary, Travis Williams, Brandy Alexander, and June Hardwick. And as you say, you were not a, you hadn't worked as a public defender. You're not a criminal lawyer. I think in your law practice days, you were at more of a corporate firm. What most surprised you? What did you learn from following these lawyers? I think the pace of their workload was really eye-opening. You know, when you're in a corporate setting or even in-house, you know, so at the corporate firm, I would work on three or four things at a time. In-house, you might get a number of questions during the day, but, you know, it wasn't anywhere near the volume of individual cases that these lawyers are juggling pretty much without complaint. You know, I saw people get a case on Thursday that was scheduled for, you know, jury selection on Monday. And you don't always get continuances or continuance may not be good for your client, you know. So I think there's the pace of what was happening. But I think what was also pleasantly surprising was the amount of really good creative problem-solving lawyering that was happening. I think right now we're in a situation where people go to law school and because of the debt they have, they end up at firms where they may or may not get near any actual humans. <laughs> and Especially in the firms. <laughs> if you're a public defender, you're dealing with people all the time. It's a very, you know, they get mature and sophisticated really quickly. And it was actually joyful to watch these young people kind of grow and skillfully handle complicated matters and really, you know, really help people concretely at the end of the day. So I kind of restored my faith in lawyering, to tell you the truth, and that was surprising. I mean, there is a kind of a perception that court-appointed lawyers are somehow not up to par with the ones that people pay for. I do a lot of talks, and I've been thinking about that a lot recently because, you know, I've been traveling around, speaking and presenting and showing the film and meeting people, and we hear there's bad people in every profession, but it's very few professions where I think we choose the worst cases and hold them up as the standard or hold them up as the norm. And so I'm starting to, you know, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, rap. We haven't actually gotten to talk about it, but I'm starting to push back against this perception that that it's the exception that are the caring lawyers because I'm just not finding the sleeping, drunk, horrible people. Not everybody is fantastic, but a lot of them really have their hearts in the right place. You know, and when I speak to colleges, I think, well, you know, when you think about it, would you go do a job that's really hard, that gets no respect, where you make no money? <laughs> Who does that? You're doing it for a different reason. And most of the public defenders I'm meeting are doing it for the right reasons. So I can't say how successful they are, but I saw a lot of really successful lawyers you know, that came out of Gideon's Promise. So I guess I have a biased view. Well, and I'd like to add, I think that's right. And I think, you know, we have these great lawyers coming out of Gideon's Promise who truly care. And I agree with Dawn. I meet public defenders all over the country who truly care, who do this work for the right reason. Nevertheless, they simply can't give every client the kind of representation they deserve. They watch a lot of clients have a lot of injustice heaped on them. 
And that does take a toll on your spirit, and it starts to beat you down and wear you down. And I would say that most public defenders are ineffective sometimes, not because they're bad lawyers, not because they don't care, but because they are in a system that is broken, that makes it impossible for even a super lawyer to do what Gideon mandated 51 years ago. So we need to fix the system. And, and I actually think we need to view public defenders as a real solution, because public defenders not only are responsible for representing each person on a case-by-case basis, but collectively, I think public defenders are the vehicle that will remind this system how broken it is and ultimately will be at the center of a larger movement to change the system, to have a more humane system, and to make sure that Gideon's promise is fulfilled. We are just about out of time for today's show, but before we close, we do want to give each of you an opportunity to give your closing thoughts and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you. And Don, why don't we start with you? And and I don't think we've mentioned anywhere in the course of this program where our listeners can find your film. So uh, perhaps you can start by telling them that. The film is aired on HBO, so it's always available on HBO Go. And it's also on iTunes and Amazon available for download or for educational use. We have an educational distributor and they can contact us at our Trilogy Films website or the Gideon's com website. So it's a number of ways that people can find the movie. Thanks. Thanks. Do you have any closing thoughts on what we've been talking about here today? You know, it really changed my life making this movie in so many ways, but I think the biggest way is seeing the new generation of people who are fighting what really is a civil rights issue against incredible odds with such courage and grace. And so, you know, when I speak to colleges, I always say just whatever people decide to do with their careers, try and do something that you have a passion for because anything you know, you're going to do is hard, and you might as well do something that's really fulfilling. So, but in speaking, I'm very hopeful about the possibilities for the future with young lawyers like this coming up. Jonathan, can you give us your closing thoughts and contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like to follow up with you? Sure, yeah. So to piggyback off of Dawn's closing remarks, uh, I think Gideon versus Wainwright came out in 1963. It's the same year as the March on Washington. It was right in the middle of a number of civil rights milestones. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because Gideon versus Wainwright, at its core, was a civil rights case. It was a recognition during an era when we were deeply concerned about violations of Americans' civil rights. It was a recognition that the criminal justice system is a place where we must address civil rights. Fifty years later, we've made a lot of progress in a lot of areas. We haven't done so well in the area of criminal justice. And I do believe that criminal justice is this generation's civil rights movement. I don't think there is anywhere else that greater abuses are happening to poor people and people of color. And I think that our public defenders are this generation's civil rights 
warriors. And again, I think it's not just going to take individual public defenders on a case-by-case basis. It's going to take a movement of public defenders that really drive change. And I think that movement then partners with people like Don Porter, who are making wonderful movies, people who have voices beyond the criminal justice community. But I think we have to support the lawyers who are coming together to build this movement. And so for anyone who's moved by that, They can learn more about how we are doing that through Gideon's Promise by visiting our website, www.gideonspromise.org, and supporting us. And certainly, while we take financial contributions, support also comes in the way of just advocates, people who sign up for our mailing list, learn more about us, share the stories of our movement and our amazing lawyers with their friends, and we will slowly build a broader and broader base of support, standing up saying the system must change. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And Jonathan, do you actually recruit uh, lawyers for these programs as well? I mean, if people are interested in, in a career in this, should they be in touch with you? Or? The short answer is yes, we do recruit this year uh, with a partnership with the Department of Justice and about 11 law schools from around the country. We launched a law school partnership project to try to get third-year law students into our partner offices across the South. We're always looking for creative ways to get young lawyers, old lawyers, law students into this struggle to help perform indigent defense. And anyone interested should go to our website and contact us, and let's try to figure out how to get you involved. Well, I recommend that you give a buzz to the University of California at Irvine College of Law because they have a scholarship program that they pay for students to go through, and they require public service afterwards. So maybe that's a good alternative for you. Thanks for the tip. Well, Bob, we have come to the point in the show where you have only 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by the buzzer. So you go first. Well, I can't help but listening to this program to think about the working conditions of public defenders, and for that matter, uh, a lot of prosecutors as well. I, you know, Justice Black and the Gideon decision used the words, it's an obvious truth that somebody can't get a fair trial unless counsel is provided for him. The problem really is that we pay our public defenders poorly, like so many things in our society, like teachers and, and others. The, some of the people who are performing the most valuable and needed services in our society are not adequately compensated for it, and that disturbs me, and I wish it would change. Well, I've been both a public defender, a volunteer uh, public defender in law school there, and, and a prosecutor after law school for a couple of years, and I've seen both sides of that fence. Both sides suffer, and I think the criminal justice system suffers in large part because of underfunding. Even here in California, the legislature's underfunded the courts. It seems to me, though, that we need to have a balance, basically through the entire court system, so that the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch all get funded equally. I think that would go a long way to solve the problem. We've reached the end of the show. Thanks again to Jonathan Rapping and Don Porter for taking the time to be with us, and uh, congratulations again to you, Don, on your award. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Congrats, Don. Thanks. I'll see you soon. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.